0: is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless.
1: It is good to be with you this morning here in Texas. The great land of Texas, I wouldn't call this a state, it's uh, way too big for that. If you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, I changed where I was going to be going this morning. I was thinking about what we wanted to share, and I all of a sudden realized that one of the texts that we looked at briefly yesterday fit together in an unusual way with the text I was going to be looking at. And um, it's very, very interesting because these are both from the Apostle Paul and they are, how would I describe them? They are outside the context of the church. They are the apostle dealing with people outside of the context of the church. And I think together, they will give us some insight, Lord willing, into sort of a way to conclude our thinking uh, for the conference that has been taking place and also on the Lord's Day. The first, you will remember, is from Acts chapter 17. And here you have that very controversial, but I think extremely important, experience where the apostle goes to Athens. He has just been at Berea, uh, where those individuals had been commended. They were called noble-minded because they received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. We all know that text. We all want to be Bereans, but there is been a few times when we need to be more Berean than, uh, than these days, and going from Berea, Paul goes to Athens, and here this great seat of human learning, this center of philosophical thought amongst the Greeks, who certainly viewed themselves as being the ones who gave light to the rest of the world, and unfortunately in the West we have continued to think that that's the case. And he has the opportunity to speak, primarily, of course, because the Greeks, well, they were already bored. <laughs> they were bored with their constant going back over the same things again and again and again. So they wanted, to have, they wanted to have others come and to say some new things. They could interact with that. And so Paul has the opportunity of speaking to them. And this is not a normal sermon This is the apostle being given the opportunity to speak to people who are very much enchanted with the wisdom of the world and the things of the world. And so he takes that opportunity, and as such, we need to be very careful, I think, in not trying to normalize what the apostle did here as if this is what we should be doing in every type of apologetic encounter, things like that. This was a very specific instance with a very specific kind of people. And I'm not gonna be reading through the entirety of his presentation, of course, but I want us to focus upon verses 30 and 31 because this is how Paul got himself canceled from continuing the sermon uh, they shut him down, and you will notice uh, that there were uh, verse thirty four. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Um, you do wonder sometimes. I my mind wanders easily these days, and. Uh, the danger for me would be I would see that phrase, and a woman named Damaris, I wonder what happened to Damaris. How did she happen to be there? Uh, what was it that Paul said that would cause her to believe? And, and by the time I finished that train of thought, the sermon's over. And uh, that's, uh, that, that probably happened to a few of you uh, along the way as well. But s- from a humanistic perspective, we would not see this as a great success for the Apostle Paul. Uh, well, in reality, uh, I think it was. Obviously, the, Luke uh, intended that we understand what Paul said and his encounters there. But here are the, the words of verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him, from the dead. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. And so, this was, this was the end of the sermon because the apostle used a Greek term, anostasis, that the Greeks underst- they, they understood what it meant. They just couldn't believe that any intelligent person would believe in this. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity of doing a debate, I think, now that I think about it, I think it was the only debate I've ever done uh, on a ship, at sea. Thankfully, this uh, was not really moving up and down a whole lot, or that could have made a very different kind of debate. Um, but uh, I and Dr. Jim Renahan debated two of the senior fellows of the Jesus Seminar, Marcus Borg, who has since died, and John Dominic Crossan, uh, who is quite aged, but uh, as far as I know, is still with us. I, uh, in, the, in the course of that debate, about halfway through the debate, now we had been very clear in our presentation, we, we had not minced any words, but halfway through the debate, I remember Dr. Crossan, who's a brilliant man. I mean, IQ just off the charts. But finally, we got through, and about halfway through the debate, he's like, so so you believe that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb because he had actually been made alive again? Now realize, this is a man who had spent most of his life as a Roman Catholic monk, He has spent the entire decade of the 60s studying the Gospels, pretty much alone in a a monastery cell. And so he hadn't run into too many people like us. (laughs) But how, it is astonishing how someone could have lived their lives even within Roman Catholicism and still go, so you mean the tomb was empty because Jesus was actually raised from the dead? That's what we believe. Wow, that's astonishing. That was the subject of our debate, and that's pretty much how the Greeks understood it as well. In Greek religion, this body is a prison, and the way of salvation is to get out of this prison and to be freed. Now, exactly what happens at that point, are you absorbed back into the one, you know, things like that, it depended on which specific sect of Greek religion you might be a part of, but for them to have that which died come to life again was scandalous. You can see it here, and that's what we finally got through to, to Dr. Crossan. Dr. Borg already knew that. He, there was a difference between the two. Borg was a former evangelical who had become an apostate, so that was a different. He knew exactly where we were coming from. Uh, Dr. Crossan had been in a very different situation. But they understood, the, the Greeks understood exactly what Paul was saying. He was not saying that Jesus was alive in the memories of his followers or anything like that. He was saying that the grave was empty because the one who died had walked out of the grave. This was resurrection. And so they mock and sneer. Now, notice what is said. He has fixed a day. And and this this is why men everywhere, everyone... Must repent. I'm so thankful that we have examples of the fact that repentance was key and central to the teaching of the apostles. I remember I was teaching a Greek class at a Southern Baptist seminary once, and I had a student come in. He had just been in a preaching class. And he showed me the list of words that had just been suggested to them that they not utilize if they want to make their church a seeker-friendly church. And yes, repentance was on the list. And so here's the apostle. God is now commanding, not suggesting, commanding men that everyone, everywhere should repent. You can't even begin to talk about the love of God to unrepentant people. You can't. He never does it. And one of the reasons that the church today has such impotence in calling for the repentance of the world for its evil is because we don't practice it and we don't define it, we don't show what it's like in the way that we live. God commands everyone to repent. Why? Because, you see, that doesn't make any sense to the secularist. That makes no sense to the secularist because all you are is a walking bag of fizzing chemicals. Or, as I've had to admit many times, being a, um, a Trekkie. Uh, the best description I ever saw was in The Next Generation, where these crystalline forms of life looked at human beings and said, You're ugly bags of mostly water. Yeah, I can see how that's a fairly, I have, I have fit that far better than I ever have in my life before. Um, Ugly bags of mostly water that will cease to bubble and fizz someday, and that's it. There's nothing more. I think we especially need to realize, now those of us of the younger generation, or the older generation, younger generation, yeah, right. The older generation, I, I had, uh, I had a, a couple stop by my, uh, my RV yesterday, and uh, I had my sign running I have a sign on the back of my RV, it's one of these, they're really cool by the way. It's one of these LED scrolling things. I have one in the back of my truck window as well, so if you're ever following a black truck down the road and it says, uh, it's Christ or chaos and personally I'm tired of the chaos. um, That's what scrolls in the back window of my truck. And by the way, if you're going to do that, remember that it's back there. because there have been a bunch of times that I've been driving along and and I'm I'm going, why is this guy sitting in my blind spot? You know, come on, either pass me or don't. And then they go by going. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I'm glad I didn't do anything else when they went by, yeah, all right. (laughs) So remember it's there because, you know, uh, yeah. So I have my, my sign on, on the back of my RV. It's bright as can be, especially at night. It's like, ugh. Um And what I have on the back of the RV, because I, I normally only have that running when I'm parked, um, is Acts 17.31. And yesterday, I had an older couple, even older than myself, uh, come by, and they said, we love your sign. Can you, how did you do that? And so we ended up having a conversation. And I started talking about judgment, and how this was a part of the world in which they and I had grown up in. We would see Supreme Court justices or presidents sworn in by putting their hand on a Bible, which is meaningless if we're ugly bags of mostly water. Because you're swearing by something greater than yourself and you're swearing about something that is greater than just this lifetime. There was a recognition, and they they saw this, they were Christians, and they recognized this as well. When you understand there will be a day of judgment, then you will be concerned about the standard by which you are going to be judged. Those of us who have the snow that used to be on the roof, but just fell down onto the something else here. We need to realize that in, when we're talking to the young generation today, under 25, that we're looking at a, a truly secularized generation. Many of them have no knowledge of Scripture at all. And the way that they're thinking is that there is no judgment. Now, they're made in the image of God. So, when they're two years old and they're told not to take the cookie and they take the cookie, they still look guilty. They still look around. But they have been taught to think in such a fashion. There is no day of judgment. That's what's leading to, by the way, just in passing, that is what is leading to this madness in our society where we are trying to do justice in this life and in this life only. One of the greatest dangers that I see, God's law says that you're to have two or three witnesses and you're to have the ability of cross-examination of those witnesses. There are so many instances where what that means is someone might get away with doing something evil in this world because there are not the witnesses to convict them. And you see, if you don't believe that there will someday be a final judgment, then that's a terrible, horrible thing. Remember during that spasm of insanity uh, when a Supreme Court justice was being, a candidate for the Supreme Court was being attacked for stuff that was 30 years old and witnesses who have all since then admitted they were lying through their teeth anyways uh, were, were, were coming forward. Christians, a few of us anyways, were saying, this is a complete violation of God's law. This is not how you do things. But you could hear the other side saying, it's far better than an innocent person be convicted and even imprisoned than to let someone get away with something. You see, that's what they have to do. That's what they have to say. They're, God has made us as justice-seeking creatures. We may be hypocritical about it, but man, i tell you, when you feel you've been wronged, you want to see justice done, right? And so we're seeking after this justice, but we're not doing it the way God has said to do it. And these people were willing, you know what? If an innocent person gets caught up, So be it. Justice needs to be done. Well, that's not justice. And that only comes from a mind that is not thinking about the fact that when this life is over, there will be perfect justice done by the perfect judge who lived a perfect life. And so that lack of an understanding of the coming judgment is fundamentally changing this society. And I don't think a lot of people see it nearly as as clearly as they should. And so the apostle says, everyone needs to repent because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness and it's the inhabited world. He's not gonna be judging kitties and doggies and bunnies. He's talking about mankind the inhabited world, and he's fixed that day. There is no getting around it. God knows exactly when it's going to happen. Everything is moving toward that great day of judgment. And that judgment will take place in righteousness, in justice, same underlying terms, the dikayo word group in Greek, the zedekah word group in Hebrew, that judgment will take place in righteousness. Why? How can that be done? Because every judge we know. What's the greatest plague we're facing today? Our system was built upon using judges as a barrier to the overreach of zealous politicians. So what have they done? They've taken over all the law schools, and now they have corrupted the worldviews of those who would be judges, so that they are no longer bound by the letter of the law, but they're willing to do whatever they choose to do out of equity and so on and so forth. That judge needs to be one who can judge in righteousness. And Paul says that that judgment is going to take place through a man whom he determined. And then, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I have I've confessed a number of times, I may have even said this briefly yesterday, that I read this text over and over again, and as an apologist, your mind just, when you're talking about proof, you're automatically... Sort of retranslate this into has provided proof of the resurrection. That's not what it says. I remember it was just a couple years ago, I was listening to someone else speaking and they went through this and I went, oh my goodness, I never saw it. This isn't proof of the resurrection. The resurrection is proof of something else. He has furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Proof of what? That he's going to judge the world in righteousness. The resurrection is proof that God is going to judge the world in righteousness. Normally when we think of the resurrection, well, it's proof of the deity of Christ, it's proof of his claims, and all the rest of that stuff. Okay, fine, but that's not what's spoken of here. The resurrection here is itself proof given to all That empty tomb is proof to everyone that God is a just God and justice will be done. And that justice, that law, is either going to be fulfilled in in union with the one who came out of that grave. Or you are going to have to stand under what that law says concerning how you have lived your life. Those are the only two options. Either in Christ, or you stand before the judgment bar of God alone. Those are the only options. And there you have proof given to all by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The point being that judgment was in the essence of the proclamation that the apostle made to the allegedly wisest people in the world and yet my experience is I'll be honest with you the more scholarly the more widely read man simply utilizes that intellect and that capacity he has to rationalize his sin and to shut off that voice of conscience. When when we read in Romans 1 of the suppression of the knowledge of God, one of the chief means by which that is accomplished is through the intellect of man, his alleged wisdom to explain away and hence not deal with that voice that God has placed within each one of us. So the point is here in Paul's proclamation, not in a church, He is in what we would call a pagan context, but it's the the wise ones of the world. What does he proclaim? Repentance, judgment, the centrality of Christ in light of the resurrection. That's what he preaches. He does not try to use their fancy words. He does not try to, to convince them to go along with his scheme, or maybe to add Jesus to their pre-existing systems. He's calling for repentance, turning away from. And there are some who hear. God is very, very gracious in that context. But what other text would I want to combine this with? Well, turn with me to... Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Now, Paul has been arrested. He no longer has the freedoms that he had. And he is brought before Felix the governor. The Jews are bringing allegations against him. He gives testimony uh, through verse 21, where he's telling the story of what has happened, and he says... uh, I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today interesting resurrection still there central to his thinking verse 22 but Felix having a more accurate knowledge about the way and by the way by the way I think that's a first of all could we sue Disney because we had this term long before they came along we really really did I had an old living Bible when I was in high school, and it was called The Way. And my parents didn't like it because, I don't know, the, the people, the pictures on the front looked like they are hippies or something, and my parents would have nothing to do with hippies, I can assure you of that. Um, but The Way, you know, not this is The Way, but The Way is a wonderful biblical description. Why don't we ever use it? You ever notice that? We just don't. I hardly ever hear anybody talking about the Christian faith as the way. And yet, um, that's, that's, that's more of a description of the Christian faith than Christian is, as far as the Bible's concerned. Fascinating to me. Anyway, but Felix, having a more accurate knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some rest and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So he, he, keeps, he keeps Paul under arrest, but not in a dungeon someplace or chained to a Roman stinky Roman soldier or anything like that. Um, he is allowed to have some rest and his friends are able to come and, and minister to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and summoned Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now this is very, very interesting, because here you have somewhat of what we might call a mixed marriage, and it does make you wonder exactly how Felix had that more accurate knowledge about the way you wonder if Drusilla had any knowledge about this subject, being a Jewess. But being a Jewess, that would mean that he has some knowledge of what the scriptures are, at least the Hebrew scriptures, things like that, maybe. So he summons Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Well, now here's a wonderful opportunity. Here is a magistrate. Here is a person with authority and power And so just as Paul spoke to the intellectually elite at the Areopagus, now he has the opportunity of speaking to a governmental official. Now, certainly, especially in this part of the world at this time, there is a lot of nepotism, confusion of authorities, kings and They're all under Roman authority now, but Rome wanted to try to keep peace and so they would give certain levels of authority and we know that the Romans were messing with the high priesthood, for example, and violating God's law and and putting people in that office who would do their bidding and all sorts of that type of stuff's going on. But Felix has real political authority. And so he is summoned Before Felix and his wife, and he speaks about faith in Christ Jesus. He speaks about faith in Christ Jesus, first and foremost. But how does he do so? Verse 25. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Oh, Paul, the broken record. I just realized broken record doesn't mean much to young people today, does it? Oh, You got some place to sit down up here? It's getting a little tired. Uh, I was a radio announcer on a radio station in Sun City, Arizona. Sun City is a retirement community. And so at that time, we were playing big band music. So I know all about Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, Artie Shaw, uh, all the great big bands love that music. Thankfully, my daughter does too. I've passed that on at least anyways. But you would would have what we would call a potty song. Uh, If you need to go use the restroom, uh, Guy Lombardo medleys were really the best because they would go on for seven or eight minutes. But you always had one nightmare and believe it or not I still have this as a nightmare even to this day I will once in a while have a dream because the record you were playing was a record it was a piece of vinyl for the young folks I need to ex- I, when I first started talking to my daughter about this she saw vinyl and pronounced it vinyl she didn't know what it was now I know records have made a comeback I think that's so cool uh, there's something about the pops and the cracks and hisses of a, of a 33 RPM vinyl record that are just sort of special. But you're, you're, what you were scared of was you'd start that long song, you'd head to the bathroom, you could still hear it through the speakers, and you would hit a skip. Now some of you are going, I don't know what a skip is. But even CDs could do it. But you might have just a little piece of something in the grooves of the record. And when the needle hit it, it would skip back to the groove that it just came out of. So it would just be repeating about two and a half seconds over and over again. And you can't run to do anything about it. And everybody in the world listening to the radio station knows what you're doing. (laughs) Knows exactly what happened. And it did happen to me once. Guy Lombardo failed me once, really did. That's what a broken record is. A broken record just keeps repeating the same thing over and over and over. So I needed to explain my illustration there. Uh, because young folks are going, MP3s don't do that. I understand that. But there are some of us in this room that remember long before MP3s were invented, um, different ways of doing things. So Paul is saying the same things. He's he's hitting the same themes. But notice, as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. And answered, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to summon for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, this does not speak very highly of Felix on any level. In many, many nations in the world today, uh, this is how things are done. Uh, you will be pulled over and uh, even arrested in many, many countries, and literally they'll have it a, like a, a pocket on the back of the police car seat. And as long as you put enough something into that pocket, you'll be released to go on your merry way. That's how it's done. And it's been done that way for a long, 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 long time. So here's Felix. And maybe he wasn't getting as much for his salary as he wanted or what, I don't know. But you can't think very highly of him because he is trying to get money from Paul. And therefore, he also used to summon for him quite often and converse with him. I'm not sure what kind of those, what those conversations were like or how much Paul was aware of this. But Paul wasn't going to be playing his game. But back to verse 25. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. He became frightened. How often are we told today? Whatever you do when speaking to people in the world, you don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to come along in such a way as to make them uncomfortable. I watched so many of these, let's just be honest, circuses. Some of these churches, oh my goodness, did you see that, that Easter show that one church did? Oh, I, I, I didn't even know what to say when seeing stuff like that. You're supposed to make people feel really comfortable, make them feel like they're at the nightclub, they're at the night before. They're just not sure, you know, am I still drunk? Where am I? It looks the same. Everybody's doing the same stuff. Oh, cool. Oh, I'm at church now? Yay, wonderful. Great. Don't make, him, don't make him feel scared. Don't talk about repentance. What made Felix frightened? Well, maybe he knew. and Maybe he had heard of some of the prophets. Uh, maybe his wife had introduced him to Isaiah or someone like that. I don't know. But I do want us to focus in upon the words that are used in the description here. He was discussing righteousness. Now, could I remind us of something? This is is very, very common for modern American Christians. We have always had this. Well, this is a Jeffrey Rice rebind, so no, we haven't always had this. And there are many of you in the room right now that are breaking a particular commandment about coveting which is why I brought it, <laughs> but we have had Bibles with leather covers, and mine doesn't have it, but, and I know a lot of you are now sitting there with your phone, but, I, you know, I, it's just not the same as having that, that leather cover sitting there, but we used to have something, a really cool thing called thumb indexing. Now, you couldn't use that during the Bible sword drills. That was cheating. Okay. Does anyone remember Bible sword drills? How many remember Bible sword drills? Eh, It's about a third of you. All of you who don't remember, you cannot leave until you win a Bible sword drill. We're going to have big people at the doors you can't get out. So there you go. Um, But uh, you would... We think of the Bible as simply as a whole, and there are proper reasons for doing that in some contexts, but we are so blessed. It wasn't all that long ago that the only time you would ever really have access to the Bible was when it was being read in a church service, because they were so expensive. You had to have the printing press, but even then, it still took hundreds of years before the Protestant Reformation says everyone needs to have it, and so they're really pushing to, to publish these things and get, get them so that people could have them in their homes and read them. The vast majority of Christians have lived and died without possessing the Word of God. That still remains the truth today in many nations. Uh, I'm hoping this afternoon uh, to get together with Pastor Jeff Neal who is not too far away speaking today, uh, co-author of the the book that I wrote on same-sex controversy. And Jeff did a missions trip a number of years ago to Uganda. And when he came back, his description of his experience was so vivid that I felt like I had gone on that mission trip. And one of the things I'll never, ever forget was how the church that they were ministering at only had portions of the Bible. And they would literally pass around like Luke. Can I have Luke this week? Uh, I'll trade you for Job. (laughs) Okay, this type of thing. And most of them, they would come into the service and they'd have these tiny little pieces of paper and a pencil and they would write notes during the sermon that were so small Jeff said I simply could not even make out what they were writing even if I could have read the language they were writing in but they had so little that they had to had to make take tiny little notes and yet they were so focused on what he was saying and this was out in the middle of the jungle they would, they would use one of those battery-powered um, keyboards. They'd start playing music, and the people would just come in from the jungle. And they were told him to be prepared to preach for an hour and take questions for two. He's never been in this situation before. And so he gets done preaching out of Hebrews, as I recall, And here come the questions. Now, he can't understand the language, so there has to be a translator. And these people who live in the jungle and don't have the entirety of the scriptures and who take notes on tiny little pieces of paper, their questions are like, how do you understand trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God? For two hours. These are serious believers. With serious love of the Word of God. So to have the Bible the way we have it and to have how many, how many different copies do we all have is a new situation. And so when we read the scriptures, we tend to project our experience back into that. And so you, what you need to realize is there is no New Testament when this is happening. When Paul is speaking with Felix there is no Matthew, there is no Mark, there is no Luke, there is no John. Had, had, had Luke started on the work? I don't know, I suppose, doing some of the research and stuff like that. But, you know, had James been written? I don't know, maybe. But there simply wasn't a New Testament yet. And so if he is going to be discussing righteousness, what's he going to be using to ground that discussion? What's he, going to be, what's he going to be quoting to Felix? Is, is he quoting Plato? Aristotle's uh, ethics, maybe? Maybe a little Cicero or something? No, that's a little out of, out of date there. No. What's he using? What's the basis of defining what righteousness is? This man has a. Jewish wife and so it seems very logical to me that what Paul is doing is he's opening up the Hebrew scriptures and speaking to a magistrate about what it means to be righteous and one thing we know from this text of scripture Luke tells us he wasn't he wasn't he's not a righteous man He has access to how he might have been able to know how to be righteous, but he's not a righteous man. Now, Paul, think about this for just a second. Paul knows this man could set him free. And even though he's not in a dire situation right now, his friends can visit him, he's still a prisoner. And he's still going to be sent off to Rome. He doesn't know what's gonna happen to him there. While the Romans had a rather extensive legal system, it could be corrupted by money quite easily. So he doesn't know what's gonna happen to him if he goes before Caesar, right? The persecution hasn't started yet from the empire, but it's real close. So here's a man who could have let him go. What does Paul do? He talks to him about faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That's not how you get people like this to let you go. Okay? That's really not how you do it. But that's what Paul does. And so he looks at the magistrate, and he looks him in the eye, he says, let's talk about what it means. What's righteousness? Who defines it? Where does it come from? He discusses righteousness with the magistrate. and Then, self-control. <laughs> Again, this guy's not trying to get out of jail very hard. Because if you want to offend people, if you want to offend, especially in our day, oh my goodness, what happened to self-control? Is, is there... I think of my youth. Now I was raised by Christian parents. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My gran- great-grandfather was a pastor going all the way back to Scotland. Um, and... So I was given a good upbringing. And I was taught that an adult is a person who controls their emotions. Self-control is a good thing. And I had a, a relative who was a highly decorated Marine in Vietnam. And he was sort of presented to me as an example of someone who was willing to Sacrifice himself and to uh, engage in self control for the proper reasons of, to do and to accomplish the proper things. And so that was just simply a part of my culture and a part of my religious upbringing. But today, today, the good in our society has become the negation of self control. It has become self-autonomy. Because, you see, to be self-controlled is to have a standard that you are controlling yourself by. You aren't setting yourself up as the standard and then just acting out any way you want. Self-control is recognizing that there's good and there's evil. There's duty and honor and justice And then there is evil and self-centeredness and selfishness. And you don't want to be that kind of a person because you want to be a person with character. But secularism has no grounds for character, no way to define character. And so we are literally in a situation today where you have individuals who are rebelling against God's decree in their life, his creative decree in their life, meeting with the President of the United States and being lifted up and put on a pedestal. These are the best we have. Dylan Mulvaney is the best we have. What is the inevitable end of a society where Dylan Mulvaney is the best you have? That's the opposite of self-control. And scripture teaches us, Christians, we must teach our children. Discipline is not simply getting a swat on the, on the rear end to do something wrong. Discipline is something you practice in your own mind. It is good, it is right, it is a representation of being made in the image of God. We control ourselves, we control our emotions. We have been created by God to have that capacity and we glorify him when we behave in that fashion. Self-control. Ugly bags of mostly water, fizzing chemicals do not exercise self-control, and they cannot see it as being a positive thing. But you'll notice when when, when Luke records these words for us, righteousness and self-control go together. You cannot have righteousness, and by the way, we can, again, like I said, it's the same word group as justice. He was talking to him about what justice is. And we live in a day where that term has become so repeated with a foreign definition that no one knows what it means anymore. All of us used to understand that justice was defined by a standard outside of ourselves. And the only way that a society could continue is if one generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation all had the same standard. When things change, not just over a year, but my goodness, in our day, things are changing in a matter of days. Things that were absolutely unthinkable just a few years ago are now being presented to us as the moral good, that if you reject, you will be canceled. You will lose your job. It's astonishing. You can't have justice. You can't have righteousness without that standard, and that standard then becomes how you understand how you are to engage in self-control. But only those who are made in the image of God engage in self-control. Oh, I know, I know. I was a biology major in college as well as uh, Bible. It's a weird double major, by the way. In fact, one of my favorite, one of you, I'm not sure if you're here today, uh, but one of you came up to me and you had my King James Only book and it had been signed by my Greek professor, Dr. Mike Baird. And so I got to sign next to Mike Baird's name. Um, But one of my favorite um, memories of my double major days, I, I majored in Bible and biology and minored in Greek in college. And one of my favorite memories was I was department fellow in anatomy and physiology and we had chemically preserved uh, cadavers. And one of my jobs uh, was to illustrate the cadavers to high school students. Any of you old enough to remember Quincy? Remember, the, remember the, the, the Quincy, where Quincy would pull the sheet back and all the cops are passing out and dying? I got to do that to high school kids. It was so much fun. It was so great. And these were real cadavers. We knew their names, the whole nine yards. And, uh, you know, you could take their chest off. And uh, the the male had smoked his entire life. And anywhere you poked in his lungs, black as pitch. It was horrible. Uh, I wish I had pictures of that because I could show it to any smoker at a restaurant. This is what you're doing. But I didn't do that. Anyway, um, so uh, I had been doing that. I had been demonstrating cadavers. And then I looked at my watch and went, oh, no. It's time for Greek class, second year Greek. And so I just go running from Tell Science building to Fleming Classroom building, was just across the little, little spot, and go running into the classroom, and it was a much smaller class, second year Greek. We had trimmed everybody down. There's only like six of us. So I sit down, I get out my Greek text, and, and we're going to be doing study of syntax. I think we were in First Thessalonians someplace. So I sit down, and I notice that my fellow students are moving their chairs away from me. And I'm like, I I didn't get it. And Dr. Baird's sitting across the way and he goes, "Uh, Brother White, um, thank you for being on time, but if you would like to go back to the science building and deposit your odiferous garment, um, I still had my lab coat on. And it smelled of the phenol that we use to uh, preserve the cadavers. And so I got to skip whatever verse I was supposed to be giving the syntax for so I could go back and get rid of my stinky, uh, stinky thing. That's what it was like to be a double major in Bible and biology and a minor in Greek in college. It was sort of fun, but it has nothing to do, I'm not even going to try to make a connection at all. <laughs> Other than I thought it was really cool that somebody at the conference had a copy of my book that had uh, Dr. Baird's thing, uh, signature in it. Anyway. Back to self-control, which I did not exercise by telling you that story. <laughs> actually, I woke about five people up uh, by, by doing that. They were, I was losing them, but they're back with us now, so that's actually something you should do once in a while. So self-control is something God wants us to do. We all know it's the only way to show respect to others is to control ourselves when people go whipping by me at 100 miles per hour on the freeway, they're not exercising self-control and they're showing no respect for me, let alone for God. Right? That's the only way we can live together as people. But what basis would Paul have to even, was he just going back to the the Stoics now? Was Was he doing this from a Greek philosophical perspective? Of course not. Self-control is found in God's law and the necessity of it. And all of that then, and the judgment to come. The judgment to come. There it is. Just as Paul had spoken to the philosophical elites and said, you are going to stand before a holy and righteous God Who knows your every thought and your every action, your every motive, and you will be judged in the body. Rejected him. But here, to the man who could let him go, who could free him, who has that political authority, Paul says to the magistrate, You will be judged there is a day of judgment coming. And Felix left Paul in prison for two years. Was it worth it? I say to you, Paul had no choice. If we are going to be faithful to the apostolic example then from Scripture, and we have so much more, But we need to remember, we have all of it, not just the last portion of it. We must, from Scripture, speak to the philosophical elite and say, repent, a day of righteous judgment is coming. It's fixed. It's as certain as the empty tomb. And we say to the magistrate, even the magistrate who has authority over us. I don't see anything recorded here of Paul saying to Felix, you have no right to be doing what you're doing. No. Felix had that authority. And the question was, what are you going to do with it? Because what you do with it, you're going to be judged for. I remember the first time I heard someone say that, because that That seemed odd to me. Isn't that a little extreme? Isn't that that going a little bit too far? I had never been taught that the church had a prophetic role to say to the state, this is why God would judge a nation. This is why God would bless a nation. I was, hey, Kate Smith. If I say Kate Smith, how many know who I'm talking about? Yep, bunch of old people. Most of you couldn't even get your hands all the hell. Oh, they're arthritis, man. (laughs) Hey, believe me. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Just had an MRI done. Guess who has tears in his rotator cuff and his bicep tendons? Oh, Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. Kate Smith. Back in the 1940s, World War II, into the 50s, would sing God Bless America. Now, that woman could sing. She could belt it out. God bless America. And I was raised to, hey, that's what it means to be a good patriot. God bless America. You can't read the Bible and come up with the idea that you should just simply say, God bless my nation, even if my nation hates God and everything that God says is good. You can't do it. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, not whose God is the state. And sin is a reproach to any nation. It does not matter which one it is. But I was raised, hey, you just, you, uh, you pray for God's blessing. That's just what you're supposed to do. What we have to do if we recognize how the prophets functioned and how Paul is functioning here is we have to say to the nation, Do you want God's blessing? Do you want to continue as a nation? Here are the things he requires of us to do justice. What you're doing is the opposite of justice. You're perverting justice. We have the blood of innocent children dripping off of our hands. The current regime worships at the altar of the murder of unborn children and now has added, worshiping at the altar of the mutilation of born children. And there can be only one clear word that must be delivered to these individuals. This brings God's judgment, not God's blessing. Not just upon a people, but upon you as the magistrate. The governor of Minnesota put out a tweet last week or the week before about how they're protecting trans rights and abortion rights and so on and so forth. And I wrote a lengthy tweet back saying, sir, you're going to stand before a righteous judge and answer for every life that is extinguished in the womb. Every child that you see mutilated, you will be judged for your role in bringing that about. Repent and believe. And the world says, what a bunch of idiots. Yeah, apart from the Spirit of God, we sure do look that way, huh? We sure do look that way. If there is no Spirit of God that takes God's truth and makes it alive in people's hearts, then what we're doing is a joke. Let's go home and watch some whatever... I don't even know what sport's playing right now. I think basketball. I have heard that. I don't know. Why are we here? If there is no... If, 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 if the Spirit of God portrayed in the New Testament has lost his power and ability, there's nothing we can do. We are wasting our time. Would you agree with that? So... But if he's still as powerful today as he was then, here's the question that a lot of us in this group would have. We know that he has the power to change hearts and minds. God could bring about a worldwide revival starting right now. All of Charles Darwin's mythology could not stop it. All of Jung and Freud could not stop it. God could change hearts and ma- minds right now. And we sit here and go, we want him to. But he's not right now. And he's not. I mean, sure, we see the church growing. We see people I see wonderful evidence of the continuing work of the Spirit of God, but in the sense of some massive change. I don't see it happening right now, not in our country. So what do we do? We remain faithful. I mean, when Paul's at the Areopagus, a few people afterwards come up to him. Just a few. Do you think he went away? Oh, man, I really messed that one up. I don't think he did. I think he saw that even that far away from the events in Jerusalem, the Spirit of God was working and planting those seeds. He was willing to work in the small contexts and see God working in that kind of context as well. We have to have that same kind of faith Looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises, even if we don't see the fulfillment in our lives. I think there's, um, oh yeah, Hebrews. Remember what it talks about? Faithfulness, even amongst the people who don't see the promises fulfilled to them in their day, they remain faithful, so we are to remain faithful. That's our calling. That's what we're to do. But how do we do that? Well, we've been given the example. We have to talk about the judgment. We have to talk about repentance. And you can't talk about either of those things without saying, the judgment will be righteous. He's going to judge the inhabited world in righteousness. That means there's a standard. The thing that's so, I don't know about the rest of you, But what's angering me so much in our country right now is that the Department of Justice has become the Department of Injustice. There's two standards. For certain people, these are your rules. For other people, these are those rules. We all know that's wrong. There is a reason why Lady Justice had that blindfold on. That blindfold has been ripped off. And therefore, you no longer have a single standard by which people are to be judged. That's injustice. I am so thankful that the promise of Scripture is that judgment that is coming will be a just judgment because there will be a standard that all will be held to. And it's not been hidden. It's not been hidden away in a corner. We know what the standard is. We know what the standard is. Today we have people trying to twist this book into a pretzel to say that it affirms homosexuality and transgenderism and all the rest of this kind of stuff. They know what it says. They put out tremendous effort to pervert what it says. The clarity of the revelation is not in doubt at all. The clarity of God's law by which we can call all men and women to repentance and faith, and by which we must say to the magistrate, here are the standards by which you will be judged. One thing's obvious. We can say that as loud as we want, but if we don't live by those same standards ourselves, we become hypocrites. A holy church a church in love with Christ and in love with living according to his commandments, when that church speaks, there is moral authority there. But if we just simply show up with a sign, say this is what's going to happen, and then just go live our life like everybody else, how is that going to be heard? How is the Spirit of God going to bless that? We have to be consistent with the message that we are proclaiming to others. We've been given the standard. Let's live by it and speak by it and speak the truth to those around us. And may God bless that message. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. and We ask that as we consider your word, you would write your truth upon our hearts, that you would give us Courage and consistency to speak your truth, to live a life in this world that will glorify you and be used by you to continue the building of your kingdom to the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray.
0: Amen. Can I be frank with you for just a second, right here at the end? Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry, and from the bottom of my heart, I say, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. However, some of you, you just, you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to covid We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now, regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you. But you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you, please, if you're willing to do so, Take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.